0: Peace, we Today, we have a guest who's building the infrastructure for a new asset class, sports carts. Lior Avidar is a visionary founder who's building a groundbreaking company, Alt, which is backed by Alexis Ohanian and 776. Alt is on its way to changing how we think about investing. Alt is the culmination of Lior's experiences working on Wall Street as a trader, to working on the API economy at Amazon Web Services, to making direct mail programmable at Lob. He's building the infrastructure much like Coinbase has done for crypto, for the world of alternative investments and specifically trading cards. As we've seen the development of market structure in other asset classes like public equities, fixed income and crypto, it will only be a matter of time before we have a similar evolution in the alternatives and collectible space. And Lior is right at the forefront of this curve. Card collecting and investing is on a tear. 2020 and early into 2021 has seen sales of sports cards at public auction reach all time highs. Lior has built out an incredible team and vision to build the platform at the epicenter of this market, and he's also built out a fund, the Alt Fund, to invest into top sports cards. He's leveraging his deep background in the space, having invested in sports cards for five years, and has generated returns that best many hedge fund and VC fund managers over the same time period. And most of all, he's a company builder who combines the best of a visionary founder who sees markets before they develop with the ability to execute and ship product. He's also the founder and CEO of Lob, a highly successful Y Combinator backed company. Today's conversation was really fun. We talked about everything from how Lior's experience and excitement for building infrastructure has dovetailed with his passion and love for sports and collecting cards, to how he's building the future of a sports card market with Alt by creating the tools and infrastructure that enable people to value, trade, and store their investments, to how cards can be a tool to connect different generations through financial literacy to how culture can become a financial asset. Today's podcast felt like we were peering into the future of what financial markets will look like. Thanks, Lior, for giving us a glimpse of what's to come. We're going mainstream. Lior, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast.
1: How are you? Doing well, I'm excited to do this.
0: Yeah, well you got a lot going on in the alt space, so excited to get into it. First, let's start with your background though. So you've done a lot of different things, how did you get to Alt?
1: Ooh, okay, that's a long story. So I started my career on Wall Street. As a kid, my dad worked on Wall Street. He worked at Bear Stearns for many years, and I saw him do it, and I just really got excited. And I remember when I was in high school thinking about what I wanted to do long term, my first big goal was I wanted to combine computer science and finance. I wanted to build this machine that would just trade stocks or bonds all day long so that I can go and travel the world. And that was the one thing. it got just got really excited, the, the automation and finance. And so... Started off my career on Wall Street. I actually left Wall Street to go to Amazon Web Services and honestly got very lucky to be at AWS when it was just right before the hockey stick curve. Started my first company at Lob. And around 2016, I started getting really nostalgic about basketball and cards. I collected a little when I was a kid, but I was really into sports. And one day my dad sent me all of my cards. They were moving and that just triggered basically everything. And so... I started going in deep. I started seeing all these arbitrages. And fast forward, I have tried to build a company that can build that joy for everyone else.
0: Well, it sounds like you experienced something probably four years before. Many of us, we've gone back home during the pandemic, and now all of us are seeing our cards. What was it that got you thinking about cards as more of an investable asset? Because that's what you're building at all, is the infrastructure for that. than just, oh, I just want to keep collecting.
1: Well, I'll be honest, it didn't hit me right away. When I got into it in 2016, I just wanted this one Kobe Bryant card. It was this 1996 EX-2000, it was this green card, and I could never have it as a kid. And so I bought a box of cards, and just off of eBay, I opened them all up, really hoping to get the Kobe Bryant card, and I got the Kobe Bryant card. And you know, you feel that joy, that was awesome. But I think the coolest moment was, on the back of every card, it actually shows you the odds. And I started calculating the odds after seeing the price of the Kobe Bryant card on eBay. And I saw an arbitrage, like the expected value of getting that card was less than what it was trading for. So I could just buy the boxes, get the card and then sell it on eBay. And I think the arbitrage was like 10 to $15. That was what really got me all this excitement. I was like, okay, I gotta do this a couple of times. And so I started doing that. I started selling the Kobe Bryant cards on eBay. And then I started saying, well, wait a second, my card is selling at $30, but if I got it graded, I don't know about this, whatever this is, PSA or Beckett, it can sell for $1,500. And so I was, okay, let me send something to Beckett. It just came out of the pack. It must be a gem mint. And so I started learning about grading and the arbitrages there and to how to figure out what PSA and Beckett, how they were thinking about grading, and all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second, forget buying the boxes and getting the card. I'm just going to buy the card and get them graded. I did a lot of data and I did a lot of testing. I was That one was almost a guaranteed return. And so that's where I really started scaling it up. It takes time, just like in any asset, you've got to learn and get educated and get comfortable. I remember starting off with 10, $20 cards, then $100 cards. I was like, wait a second, can this really be true for a $1,000 cards? And then I remember buying my first $5,000 card and then a $20,000 card. And so over time, I've really develop the skill set to understand what is going to make me money, what is not, what is collectible, what is investment grade, what is just a hobbyist product. And it's taking me say probably until 2019. That's when I really started hitting full throttle on it.
0: That's fascinating, particularly because you were so much earlier than this current explosion in the card space. So, just some context for people a few weeks ago, there was a Mickey Mantle card sold for over $5 million. There's been multiple LeBron James cards and Giannis rookie cards sold for $1.82 million or so. And then there's been uh, a number of other cards that have kind of hit the million dollar mark. So, that's just context for people now. And then it feels like this card space is white hot. What was the space like back then?
1: Cards were not selling that much. I would say the maximum was probably like forty to seventy thousand. I remember there was this one Steph Curry card, the Steph Curry Gold Refractor. For those that are, that card like a, will sell probably in excess of two hundred thousand dollars. I remember someone listed that card for auction, and it was ending at three a.m. And I stood up all night, and I, and it ended up selling for four grand. And I remember my heart pounding. I was like, that is so much money for a card. And I ended up not buying that. And so that kind of gives you the idea like five grand was a lot for a card back then. And maybe the LeBron cards were at like thirty to forty thousand dollars for a rookie card or a rare one of one.
0: Interesting. Walk us through the evolution over time of the card space, both in the context of what's happened in the card space, but also you were on Wall Street, you've worked as a trader, you understand market structure evolution. So walk us through where we are today from the time you've seen it from back when you started investing and collecting.
1: Yeah. So I'm generally a really curious person. So whenever I do something that I don't understand, I try to ask myself why I did that. So why did I have this sudden urge in 2016 to buy a card? And it was just that I was connected to it because in 1996, which were my formative years, that's when I collected and I played basketball and Kobe Bryant happened to be big. And I remember in around 2017, I was like, wait a second, probably a lot of people are going to have the same exact thing that when they're in their 30s or they have enough disposable income, they're going to want something to remember their youth. And I never was like, it's going to be hard. I would, that was just, like, I'm going to want something to remember when I was a kid. I want something to treat my eight-year-old self. I remember thinking, oh, i probably beat a couple of people by a couple of years. Maybe I should corner the market or start buying these things. That was kind of the first inkling of the market. And then I started seeing the cyclical pattern. I call it like there's this 25-year effect on collecting. Between the ages of eight to 14... And then 25 years later, there's this effect. Like you want the things that you're treating your eight-year-old self, you get nostalgic. And you actually see these cycles through a lot of different asset classes. Like muscle cars are actually a really good example of that. And so I thought I saw early signs that this was happening by looking at the Jordan market. I did not grow up in the Jordan era. By the time I grew up, I grew up from Chicago. I saw like Michael Jordan live once or twice. And so I missed that. But I started seeing Jordan cards go up. And I remember thinking... They're out of my hands. They're too high, too high price. I can afford them. All the people who watch Jordan are just obsessed. And I was like, why is that? And I was like, wait, that's going to happen for Kobe Bryant, for people who were born in the late 80s, early 90s. And then in the 90s, early 2000s, it's going to happen for LeBron. And so you start seeing that demand start building in, and it's different segments of the market. It starts with hobbyists, and then you start getting institutional money. I remember seeing early investors just talking to them, People on Wall Street, they're like, I just want a Michael Jordan card. And it, it was more, yes, it's an investment grade card, but because it reminds me of when I played basketball in high school or when I watched him on TV. And so those early signs of those players coming to that market and that demand, it wasn't just one to two people. I was okay, this could really be an asset class. And I felt that the most interesting part was on the valuation side. Cards are not unique. They're semi-fungible in terms of like the actual asset not everything is a one-to-one. Every card, there are many of them. And so you can start utilizing different pieces of the market and data to actually triangulate a price. It actually functions very similar to valuing companies. And so I started taking that approach and I realized this is all the things that people do for assets. And so slowly over time, more and more, I realized, hey, this is a mature asset class.
0: So let's walk through that because there's so many different aspects to cards. There's the grade, there's sometimes the autograph, there's the year, the vintage or the year that it was produced. There was whether it was a rookie card or not, there was the player's performance. There's so many things that determine the value of the asset. And we obviously, if we're in financial services about market data companies, Moody's or S&P, and they're serving critical function. So walk us through where the card space is in that regard. How do you think about leveraging data to value cards and then how that drives your investment decisions or your framework
1: in investing in cards? Oh, this is a great, the currency in this space is data. The data is not easily accessible as it is on Wall Street. You just go to Bloomberg and pretty much find almost any type of information here. It's very disparate. Many people don't even have all the data. So if you have a lot of data, you have a lot of currency and you do have an edge. The second part I would say, there's a lot of different types of cards. There's investment-grade cards, there's speculative cards, and then there's hobby cards. I mainly deal in the investment-grade card space. And I would actually compare it to bonds. I I do talk a lot about how cards and bonds have very similar properties. So an investment-grade card generally has four properties to it. We talk about the vintage, the year, the player, the form factor, the manufacturer in this case, Panini or National Treasures, And then the last one is the grading company and the actual grade, very similar to Moody's and S&P. And so for it to truly be an investment-grade card, it needs to hit the investment-grade threshold for every single one of these. So for example, a player, LeBron James, is an investment-grade asset, an investment-grade player. His Exquisite, which is one of the best brands, most collected, is an investment-grade card. If it's a PSA 10 or a BGS 9.5, it's an investment-grade card. And then the year, obviously 2003, his rookie year. And so those are the things that can make it investment grade. There's probably one other thing that's a little bit different than the bond space, which is this idea of rarity. The more rare the card is, the more investment grade it becomes. And so when I'm looking at cards... I'm looking for those particular qualities.
0: Just so people understand, so like rarity, one of what number card? There's Sometimes there's one of one, sometimes there's one of 10, sometimes there's one of 200. When you say rarity, what do you mean? When you say grading,
1: how and why are these things the way they are? What's really interesting about how the manufacturers created cards, and it mostly started in 1996, so a lot of people don't realize this, 1996 was a pivotal year for cards, and so the 25-year event is now... And then we also have this unique year of 1996. So post-1996 cards and prior to 1996, very different. Post-1996, they started serializing cards. And what I mean by that is if you look at either the front or the back, it'll say what how many they made. Beforehand, they just re- didn't really state that. So theoretically, you don't really know how much is out there. They might give you an idea, but you don't really know. And they can easily be forged. Post-1996, Kobe Bryant's year, they started cards, EX credentials, There was 500 of them. And so I'm always looking for cards that I know the pure denominator. I want to know how many exist in the market. And so when I say something is rare, I generally mean that there's less than 500 out there.
0: And and just to be clear as well, there's graded cards, which are PSA or BGS graded, or there's raw cards as well. You see people selling cards that are not graded on places like eBay. What, the, the, and then people are often saying things like, there's only a population of five that are PSA 10s. How do you think about the, the scarcity effect when it comes to graded versus ungraded cards? Is there an arbitrage there that people are either should capture or trying to capture?
1: There's probably, there's so much arbitrage in this space. The number one thing is the pure scarcity of the card itself. So scarcity of serial numbered cards, literally it says one out of 50 versus a non-serial numbered cards. The serial numbered cards are always better. The population is a manufactured number. The population is its scarcity at this moment in time. But if I take a card that people didn't really think about grading, it could be pop 10, but there might be thousands of them in the world, and as soon as it starts getting popular, everyone sends them to PSA and Beckett, and all of a sudden, the population will decrease. I like things where I know the denominator. And so the population of PSA or graded cards is a nicer to have, but the must-have for me is the pure scarcity of the actual asset itself.
0: And then how do you think about that in the context of the player? When you think about different players and you think about your investment framework of, oh, I need a LeBron card because he's an investment grade player versus maybe a Zion Williamson who could be great, but he was only a second year player.
1: Yeah, so again, this goes back to investment grade versus like speculative cards. The way I would think about it is if if somebody stopped now, do they have enough accolades on their table? And when I say accolade, this is on and off the court. So generally the ones that people are looking at is MVPs, championships, and momentous, the cultural aspects or influence that they've done off the court. And so if they stop there right now and they have enough, there's a threshold, then they're investment grade. Like LeBron James has done enough already. Steph Curry has won two MVPs. He's done enough already. Kobe Bryant isn't playing. There's enough already there. Luka Doncic, great player, not investment grade yet still speculative. If he stops playing tomorrow, that card is not going to be able to keep up its value. So that's the big speculation, I would say.
0: So would an example be like post the, the last dance show for Michael Jordan on TV, his card went up as well. Is that, Are those types of things that investors or collectors should be looking at as well to see like hey, this could increase the value of a card if they're doing something really exciting
1: off the court in addition to what they might do on the court? Yeah, definitely. That just brings the notoriety. I think that's obviously just increasing the demand, but absolutely. He's noteworthy enough that people are actually creating content around him and it's memorable and it's something that is a cultural phenomenon in our society. So completely, it's probably the same difference between value stocks and growth stocks. The investment grade are really the good value ones. The growth stocks are ones that honestly could topple over if they don't hit their next two or three earnings.
0: Mm-hmm. But they also have the potential for massive returns if you hit on the right rookie or second-year
1: player who's
0: doing really well.
1: Absolutely. depends depending what you're chasing. Investment-grade cards have really good returns. Sometimes I compare dollar for dollar, where is the best IRR? When a Steph Curry rookie card is trading at the same value as a Luka Doncic card, I'm going to buy the Steph Curry card. Dollar for dollar, my risk is lower. And I think I can make the same returns.
0: Interesting. Walk us through how you think about investing in this space. And then you mentioned there's investment grade cards, there's more speculative cards, there's hobby cards. You might just love a player who's never going to be an MVP or win a championship, and you may still want to have that for the nostalgia factors. Walk us through how you think about the investment aspect of cards as an investable asset, and then how like how this space. I think that'll bleed into like how this space institutionalizes over time. So like where investors, whether they're family offices, high net worth individuals, wealth managers, start to allocate assets just like they would any other asset class?
1: Yeah. When I'm thinking about the space from an investing side, I try to remove any type of emotional attachment associated with the cards and the players. And so the number one goal is obviously get a good return, my IRR. And so how do I build a diversified portfolio? And so the first is I basically said, okay, I'm going to divvy it up into a certain amount of sports so that one sport does not dominate my entire portfolio. And within each sport, I'm going to pick a set of players that are investment grade and speculative ones. Therefore, I can have a very, again, diverse portfolio. I generally steer more investment grade because I do believe that the market itself is gonna go up. And so if you're buying the investment grade cards, you're really buying like the market index. There's no true market index right now. So that's what I've been doing over the last five years. I would say most of my strategy has been buy and hold. I have a couple of really interesting arbitrage strategies uh, that I've been doing for the last five years. So my personal IRR has been 152% over the past five years.
0: Oh, wow. I'd love to compare that to some hedge funds in more traditional asset classes because that's a very, very good return and shows. One is there's actually a financial asset here to generate value on as an investor. Two is there's actually some data that shows that, that, that this is an uncorrelated asset to equities. So it seems like this might be becoming an investable asset class.
1: Absolutely. I think the uncorrelated part is really interesting. These do function based on the demand of the players, So their career accolades are not going to be tied to how the S&P is doing. So that's a really interesting phenomenon that I think people get excited about. I think the thing that I'm looking for that I think a lot of people are also looking for is size. Can you actually deploy enough cash into this asset to deploy enough capital to get those higher returns? And can those returns hold up in the higher dollar space? So That's what I've been trying to look at for the last year. And I think the answer is yes. I think you're seeing the prices soar because a lot of people have realized that. And so a lot of the institutional money is coming in because they do believe that this asset class is going to grow and they can deploy 10 to 100 to hopefully a billion dollars over the course of the next two to three years.
0: You made the news for buying a, a very famous LeBron James rookie card. From that, you must have obviously thought it, it was not the cheapest card in the world. To, to, to put it lightly, you must believe that there is liquidity at a higher price if you're buying a card at that that range. So walk us through what was the reason for why you bought that card and, and then what you're thinking is as this space starts to mature and institutionalize.
1: Yeah, so, okay, this is really interesting. So after I realized all of this and I was like, okay, I want to bet on this market, I needed to figure out how do I bet on it in size and what would be the smartest way to do that? And so the interesting thing about the card space that actually is different than any other asset class is there are rankings. And what I mean by that is that if you take a specific player like LeBron James, you can rank out all his best cards. And those rankings are pretty much set in stone. His rookie cards are always gonna be better than his non-rookie cards. And so I was like, what is the best card that I can buy of the best player? Because if the market is gonna go up, that's the best way that I can utilize my capital. And so that was really why we went after that big card it was the highest size that we could find at the time, best player, best card. And so as the market moved up, I literally have the best asset, basically like buying the penthouse uh, in the best property in the United States. And so that was the hypothesis that we had and you know, turned out to be true.
0: And you must believe that there is, at at a higher price, institutional demand uh, or the ability for people to transact at those levels. The Mickey Mantle card was bought for $5 million, so there's clearly demand in the multi-million dollar level. And I think it was either you or somebody else who said that there's a million dollar cards that are being bought and sold now, but at some point there's going to be a $10 million card.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the part that people forget is when something becomes too cost prohibitive, that's where fractionalization comes in. That's actually a sign of a really good market. And so when companies couldn't be bought and sold purely on the whole asset, they obviously created the stock market so that you could actually buy pieces and get some liquidity. The same thing is happening in cards. You have some great companies from Rally, Otis, Collectible, and Dibs right now doing securitization. And so as the prices go up, not only are we bringing institutional players into this space, but you're getting these platforms who are buying these big assets and then making them a lot more accessible to retail investors by basically breaking them up. And so... I'm betting on the fact that more and more of these companies are going to exist, and so if when it's time to get liquidity, I have actually multiple options to go and get liquidity.
0: So you, you bring up a great point, which is fractionalization, uh, maturation of a market, and the ability to unlock both retail and institutional demand at scale. You've been investing in this space for a number of years. You've been dealing with kind of current exchange venues. You've been dealing with the market data uh, th- that's currently out there, or maybe lack thereof, uh, we, should, we should say, Um you decided not to build a fractionalization business, but you've built a business that is, is going to be a big part of the card space after being an investor in it for many years. So let's talk Alt. Why did you decide to to build Alt?
1: Uh, Alt is a platform that allows you to invest in cards as easily as stocks. It's the infrastructure. I love building infrastructure. That's what I've made my career on. My first company that I started, Lob, is infrastructure for direct mail, and there's something about seeing problems uh, in the world and being the one that solves it for everybody that really excites me i like being the base i like building a platform that people can build upon it it creates this community you're helping other people out you're giving them the tools you're not just the end all be all for a specific person you're teaching people how to do things themselves as well and so i get a lot of joy of doing that and so for my you know expertise at law building an infrastructure company That's what I want to do at Alt. The key element that the entire asset is missing is an exchange. That's the most core part. We need to be able to transact these assets. And so I wanted to create this infrastructure for it so that a lot of other really great companies can have a lot of success as well. And so I believe that if the exchange is successful, companies like the fractionalization companies that we were talking about a minute ago are going to even have more success
0: Mm -hmm. let's talk about why build an exchange you've been a student of market structure and market structure evolutions for some time whether it's equities fixed income alternative assets and now trading cards or sports cards are part of that walk us through the current market structure and the life cycle of a trade so where do you go now what are the venues you use what data do you use and then how does alt solve all those problems
1: yeah i think you're it's a great question because as we walk through it, we'll start discovering all the problems. So right now, the majority of cards are sold on eBay and Instagram. I would say more sophisticated investors are buying on Instagram because there's a community. I would also say Facebook is in there too. They can connect to each other directly.
0: Well, just one quick question there on Instagram. It may be a place where you can buy and do it cheaper than eBay, but how, how, how do you think about the trust issue there versus eBay, which may be a more verified platform?
1: The trust issue exists. It is the same on all of them. You cannot trust anybody. I don't think Instagram, I don't think eBay has it solved. I bought a card on eBay the other day. I wanted fair and square. And then the, bot, the seller just reneged on the offer. And It's somebody that I know. And so even on eBay, you can't trust anybody. So that trust issue, I would say Instagram, Facebook, or eBay, it's the same. Anybody at any point in time until you get the card in hand can renege on the offer. So there's no trust across anybody, unfortunately. But yeah, that's the first place that I generally go and buy cards. And most people are doing it on Instagram and Facebook to avoid fees. For such a mature asset class, when fees are 12.5%, that makes no sense. The more liquidity that there is in the market... The one thing that we've seen over time is transaction fees decrease. And so that's been a big escape over time. The next thing is payment processing. And this is something that's, I would say, like been a big talk in the community already. So on Instagram and Facebook, generally people are using PayPal. So you at least have some protection. For those that uh, have enough trust, they'll do something called friends and family, which basically bypasses the uh, protection that PayPal offers. And so you can go direct to a person and do that to save any fees at all. And then obviously on eBay, they have their managed payments product, but they were using PayPal before. So mostly it's it's the PayPal. And then I would say on the shipping side, people are actually utilizing FedEx and USPS, which all opens up a whole nother can of problems. That's probably like the whole life cycle. And then you can finally get the card in hand probably after four or
0: five days. Interesting. So that's the life cycle of the trade all all the way from deciding to invest in delivery. What about like the market data where you figure out, is this card worth the value? There's massive spreads. You go on eBay and you look at the same card or what seems like the same card. There's massive spreads on these cards in some of these auctions. So how do you find, what what are the right venues to go to for market data? How do you think about what the right price is for a card? And then not, not only you may be buying it at a fair price relative to where other cards are purchased. But then you have to think about liquidity. A card is only as valuable as you can sell it for, in a sense, too. So how are you thinking about that?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, I'll, t- I'll try to touch on a couple of them. So let's just assume you've already sourced the card, because sourcing in itself is a whole nother problem. How do you figure out how to value a card? And so the first question is, okay, you need data, and we can talk about the different valuation mechanisms. So The the data right now is very disparate and it's very noisy. You can go to eBay and you can go look at their closed, like their sold items list. And you can go through and see all the items of that particular card and see, hey, how much is it worth? The problem with eBay is that actually they don't list exactly what a card is worth. There's different types of order types. There is an auction order type. There is a buy it now order type. And then there's the best offer. When something goes for a buy it now or a best offer, eBay doesn't tell you the exact price at the end of the day. And that makes it really hard to know, hey, do I trust its data point or not? And so there's a couple of other data sources out there, whether it's WorthPoint or PWCC, that show these historical data points. You can check like public auction sites like Golden. And so you can start trying, like, what is a real price? What is a fake price? But you generally have to remove your outliers. Now you get like, a core piece. And I would say, okay, what if I'm buying a really rare card and I can't find an exact one? Then I have to actually start finding data that's not perfect. I can either change the player, so find an exact card but a different player, a different grade, and a different year, and start utilizing multiples. And so this is where valuations become very similar to how companies get value. You can either look for historical transactions, which makes it really easy, and then I would just adjust for how the market has corrected over whatever the last time frame of that last data point. Then there is basically comparable. So if I'm buying a LeBron Card, maybe I'll look for the Kevin Durant card of that same year, and then I can see what the general relativity of Kevin Durant to LeBron James is and apply that multiple. And you can do that with a lot of different players to start basically triangulating a range. And that basically that range allows you uh, a confidence when you're negotiating with the buyer or seller. I'd say that's the majority. All of this falls out the window when you want to be a market setter. So if you're a market follower, just a general market participant, you're following the general trajectory of the market, and you're going to price it. If you're a market setter, you might say, okay, this is what it's worth today, but I'm going to buy it at a premium of 20 to 30% because I believe that some of the fundamentals underlying this asset are going to change. For example, I believe that Kevin Durant is going to win a championship, and therefore you might think that every Kevin Durant card is undervalued. Mm-hmm.
0: And then so how do you think about that in the context of different types of cards there may be a card manufacturer but then there are different types of cards there may be national treasures like you mentioned before there may be uh various types of like there's the base sets how do you think about that aspect as well because people might look at these different card assets and say oh i got a kevin durant rookie but the reality is it's a line or a set that's not nearly as good as a national treasures which is our panini black or something like that in the football space so how do you think about that aspect of things as well
1: yeah i mean this is where people need to educate themselves So I only buy the best of the best. And so National Treasure, Prism, Topps Chrome, Exquisite, those are probably like the four best, literally the brands of the card. So I generally will stick to those because, one, I I do think that they are the cream of the crop. And two, I understand it really well. Like I can't understand the whole world of cards. And so I generally stick to those. You can play in a lot of different things. Let's go back to the bonds. You have your investment grade category, and then you have your up and coming brands. And so In general, I'm not trying to bet on a brand. That's just not the type of bet that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to make a bet on a specific player. And so by eliminating brand risk, I can really focus on what is the true bet that I am taking. The cards are really a vehicle for a bet.
0: So when you say a bet, that kind of brings up the thought of fantasy sports and sports gambling to some extent, both of which are extremely popular. Sports is a huge part of pop culture. So is this market right now mainly individuals? Is it institutions who are looking to, to return money on their investment rather than necessarily care about the idea of, of just being passionate about sports, although many of those people probably are, are passionate about sports as well, so maybe they can marry those two interests. How do you think about that aspect of the card space? Because what you're getting at in terms of your investment process actually feels highly institutional in nature and fr- in, the, in terms of the framework of how you're thinking about it, and not easy for the individual investor necessarily.
1: Yeah, it started off as passionate people about cards, but it's evolved, right? People who have had their careers in finance, this this interests them. I call it like interest-aligned investing. You can apply a lot of the same things that you learn and you do day-to-day to an asset class that you're really connected to. And so I do think over the last four years, you're seeing a lot of new entrants are these institutional or sophisticated investors who are coming in. They do care about it. They do like it. But they also have this skill set that they can apply to this asset class. So I would say we're going to see a lot more institutional money coming in. And there will be just a lot more smart money and sophisticated people who are really thinking about how to price things out. The market is already becoming efficient. There used to be so many different arbitrages available in this space. And these days, you might be able to find one once a month if you're lucky. And the size that you're finding them, it's not at the size that you... Used to find them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, at Alt, you're building things like portfolio management tools to help people manage their portfolio. You're building vaulting tools as well to help people store their very valuable assets. If you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollar or multi million dollar cards, who are you building Alt for? Is it for the individual? Is it for the institution? How, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it's for everybody, and so I would say it's probably skews a little bit more towards the investor than the pure collector. Uh, and so, because of that, portfolio management is right up in front center, just like a brokerage account. And so, what I've tried to do is really, again, I you know I talked about how I want to make it as easy to invest in sports cards as stock. So, who are the people who are investing? So, this is meant for investors in this asset class. We do have products for the collectors, but I would say it prioritizes the investors over the collectors. I would say a lot of the collectors, if they weren't making money, I don't know if they would be collecting this. It. Like. That does spark a real big joy in people who collect these cards is it's a cool side hustle. And so I'm just creating the tools for them to continue the side hustle and make it a little bit more frictionless. We were talking about infrastructure before. What are the key things that need to be done in this space? So one of them is custody. Literally, who owns these assets? Right now, when you buy something off of eBay or Instagram, somebody actually has to send you the asset. And so on Alt, when you go to the exchange and you buy something, it's already in our custody. It's already verified. It's already graded and everything is done instant. So you buy something, the money transfers, it is now in your vault and so you can now do whatever you want. You can relist the card if you thought that it was too low, you can keep it, you can send it and hold it in your hand. But at the end of the day, the custody aspect is already controlled within our ecosystem. The second part is on the evaluation. I talked about how cumbersome of a process it is to go figure out how much a card is worth. It doesn't have to be that way and so we've tried to make that front and center. And so it's in beta right now, but we have something called the alt value. And so we're taking all of these models that people are basically calculating in their head and we're building a model around it so that we can actually say, Hey, when you put this card on alt, we'll tell you how much we think it is very similar to a Zestimate or a Kelly Blue book. And so it's still early, but it's becoming more and more accurate over time.
0: That's fascinating. All I can think about when you say that is I've been waiting four weeks for my Kevin Durant rookie card to come in the mail and it's stuck in the mail. I bought it on eBay. It's a decent card. And if you spend some money, you want your card to be valued. So it sounds like what you're building to some extent is really built around, at its core, trust. And a financial institution has to have some level of trust, whether it's investing in stocks and bonds or whether it's investing in trading cards. How do you think about building trust with your customers at all?
1: By the way, this is probably one of the hardest things you can do. And what I've learned over time is that you cannot call yourself a trustworthy platform. It's one of those things you cannot anoint yourself. It's only your customers and your users can tell you that you are a trustworthy platform. And I think that's just consistency. It's consistency in quality. It's doing what you say. It's doing things that are right. And then over time, every time we do something right, we're depositing cash into someone's trust account. And at some point they can say, oh, I really trust these people because they do what they've said. We've tried to create a lot of tooling around that. And so the biggest one I would say is around the custody aspect, like just getting things. You buy something and you get it. That is the biggest part that is creates the most distrust in the community right now. You buy something, they never send it. They buy something from you, and then they return it because the player got injured. It just creates all this unnecessary drama in this space where it really should just be something that's passionate. Like people are doing this when they're not working or on the weekends or at nights. Like, No one has time to deal with all that for something that's just so exciting.
0: Well. Passion. That's actually, I want to hit on that because I think between what you just said and something you said a little bit earlier about that that sports is something that people really care about, it's interest based investing. There's a whole crop of people, particularly younger people, probably younger than us, who are are maybe used to investing in financial markets. There's a whole younger group of people who maybe the first asset they invest in could end up being on alt. They could be buying or selling a trading card on alt. How do you think about that when it comes to building the infrastructure for this space? And almost just like maybe Coinbase has done in the crypto space being the on-ramp to getting net new investors, you may be creating an entirely new set of financial market participants, albeit in cards, instead of some other asset.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things I talk about is I think that there's a shift right now in our society. Historically, the assets that people bought to generate wealth were stocks, bonds, real estate, very traditional assets. I don't believe that the future generations are going to be buying these things. They generally are more, again, this interest aligned. They want to buy things that mean something to them. Culture means a lot to the next generation. And so you're going to see a lot more people buying into sneakers, arts, watches, uh, and sports cards, sitting with Birken bags, different types of clothing matter to people. And I believe that in the future world, these things are currencies that should be connected to the old world. Like, what if you could buy a home using your sports cards? That is such a hard way to connect things. And so I I want to build a platform where you can literally take your alt statement at the end of the month, go to your bank and get pre-approved for a loan to go buy a home. Why do you have to have a stock portfolio to go and do that? It doesn't make sense. It's outdated. And so if alt is successful, all these assets that people have had for 20 plus years can now be utilized to actually do something. And the similar thing with cryptocurrency, people just don't trust old things, which has been talked about as this old boys cloud. People want different things of store of value, but they want to still be able to buy the things in the physical world. Something that's
0: interesting there is I've, I've talked to a number of wealth managers who I asked them about crypto and some are still very skeptical, obviously starting to invest. I I tell them about cards. And maybe because there's some tangibility to the asset, they can touch it and feel it. They know who Patrick Mahomes is if they live in Kansas City, and they know he's won Super Bowls for them. There's some level of tangibility to cards that there aren't to some of these other assets. How do you think that impacts the card space and then how this space institutionalizes, maybe even before some others?
1: Yeah, I I think you're spot on. Crypto is really hard to communicate to people when people don't understand what it is if I go tell my grandma hey you should invest in this NFT or cryptocurrency she's going to look at me and we're about to have probably like a two-day conversation and maybe she'll be able to understand it just because it's so foreign when we talk about sports cards I get to say it's art but for sports or it's sports art and all of a sudden people, people can understand why like a Van Gogh sells for 100 millions of dollars right and so when you start thinking about it that way it's just a lot more digestible It's a lot more relatable. You can't really relate to cryptocurrency. You can't touch and feel it. No one played cryptocurrency as a sport when they were a kid. And so there's just something more familiar about it. As you said, you can touch and feel it. You participate in some way, shape or form. And so because of that digestment, I do think that market maturity is going to be a lot faster than the seven or eight years that it took Bitcoin cryptocurrency to start getting its first institutional investors.
0: And then when it comes to the tangibility, you mentioned you have an alt vault, which will store those assets on behalf of those investors. A big part of cards, at least for us growing up, was opening up the pack, keeping it in our house, being able to look at it, maybe show friends. What's your view on the aspect of it being a tangible asset that people can touch and feel and actually physically hold versus maybe not physically hold it, but still have ownership of it?
1: So the way I would encourage people to think about it, no one's going to put 100% of their cards in the vault. Maybe they do. Maybe they really don't care about the physical tangibility. But what the vault enables you to do is what people are going to care about. For example, when you store cards within our vault, we're going to give you margin so you can increase your buying power. That's pretty cool. If you don't have any cards in our vault, you have basically one-to-one with your cash. And so you can actually get some leverage on it. We can actually manage and sell things for you. You can get liquidity a lot easier. So when you want to take action on these assets, that's when you're going to put them in the vault. I don't think people are just going to keep it in the vault 100% of the time and interact with it. That's not the goal of the platform, to interact with your cards digitally. It's to actually take actions of the cards and to make those actions a lot simpler than it is today.
0: To me, it sounds like you're creating a next generation financial institution or investment bank. Think about it. One of the things that the ultra high net worth community is able to do is they're they're borrowing against the assets they have so that they can leverage the assets they own. Maybe it's a single stock and a big company, and then they're able to live their life or do something else or invest in something else. When you think about that, that's kind of mind blowing that you're going to be creating this for the card space.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's beyond the card space. I would love to, and this is a big claim, so I'm not saying I think, I, I hope I can achieve this one day, but creating a bank or a financial institution for all these assets that just were generally, like when you go to a bank and say, hey, can you give me a loan against my basketball cards or my wallet collection or my spoon collection, they're just going to look at you and laugh at you. And I believe those are real things. They're values of our culture. They have true value to it. And so there needs to be an institution that can recognize that. And so if Alt can do that, all of a sudden we're breaking away from kind of these traditional banks. And it's a new financial institution that really recognizes culture and what modern day and the future generations are going to be investing in. And we can leverage all those financial products that the banks have, but the underlying asset can be something different. And so if Alt can be the bank for all these alternative assets, that would be a great outcome. I think we can help a lot of people. I think there's a ton of work that needs to be done in order for us to be able to get there.
0: You mentioned something earlier on the podcast about community and how you wanna build a community. This is something that somebody like Alexis Ohanian has talked a lot about. He believes that many companies, if not all of them, need to be community-led or community-first companies in order to create the community that then makes people trust or transact on a platform or something like that. So you mentioned that a bit earlier. How, how do you think about building community? Because what you're talking about there is doing something that traditional financial services institutions really haven't been able to do which is create community
1: well i think the reason there's no institution because it's so cutthroat no one is helping them in the stock and bond market you're rarely going to tell people hey i have an edge in this or here's how you should be pricing that i think the way you have to build community is you have to help people you have to educate them and so that's been my goal in the card space i want to share this i want to share this with people the cool thing about cards that i've seen is kind of the intergenerational relationship I see a lot of kids doing it with their parents and I love that aspect and so how do you keep that you have to make it fun and so stocks bonds these traditional assets for some reason they're they're not fun they're not intergenerational and so if we could build a community around this and cultivate that and help each other out I, I think it'll just be a lot more meaningful I think too many people are focused on greed and making money if we can build an ecosystem where a lot of people succeed make friends build relationships, that's pretty cool, too. At this stage in my career, I want to be able to do both. And to Alexis's point, I do think that having a community is actually a value add that a business can have these days. Well,
0: that's such a fascinating point about the intergenerational aspect from a wealth manager's perspective. And we thought about this a lot in the alt space when I was at iCapital, which is 90% of the time that wealth is transferred from one generation to the next, that next gen client switches advisors. So what you're saying here is almost that imagine if like cards, something that's so relatable to culture could be used as a way for people to educate younger people about how to invest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I always talk about this. I think cards are the new lemonade stand. I'm hearing so many stories of people paying their way through college and med school by trading basketball cards or sports cards. And I find that awesome. That's such a cool thing. Like I always see trading cards as a way to get a lot of that bats, reps within business. And so if you can do that, you can utilize those skills in other areas of life, not just in this community or in this, in this space. So there's a lot of really good skills that you can learn just by uh, participating in this. So to your point, absolutely. If I were a wealth manager out there, one of the reasons I would be excited about this space is – I can, one, teach somebody a new asset, but I can get their entire family connected, and so when they're passing on that, this is a way for them to practice, or maybe we're starting to invest together on something that the next generation is gonna get really excited about, and all of a sudden, maybe they never cared about the the finances, of the family, or the business, and now all of a sudden, they're excited.
0: Well, there's also something really interesting about that, too. Imagine if you had that Mickey Mantle rookie card. That's a piece of history and nostalgia that you can also start a conversation with, or a younger generation learns about that. How does that aspect of things impact how you think about cards, how people talk about cards, and maybe what's different about cards than other stocks or bonds? People aren't necessarily going to talk about that.
1: Yeah, people talk about stocks and bonds, but not the same way. There's a story to be told about every card, and culture is actually trans or transformed through generations through storytelling. And so the stories, every card that I buy, there's the profit and loss on it, but What people love talking about is where did I find this card, right? What the negotiation was? What was the process to get it? People fly out. They have drinks and dinner when they're buying a card. There's a process to it that people really enjoy. And so even if you find it on eBay, there's a story to be told. Oh, this was the first card that I bought of Giannis because he reminded me of when I played basketball against this player – the storytelling aspect is what's most important. And so that's one of the reasons I don't want these cards just locked up in a vault all the time. I want people to be able to go and see them. And so hopefully with one of the cool projects that we're going to be working on is creating a pop-up museum for modern culture where we can showcase not just the cards that people have purchased, but also some of the other things that represent our culture.
0: Well, people can right now go and see some of your cards on Instagram. You have a display of some of your cards. So people are able to use social aspects to share. And, and even with all, you can show some of your cards on the Alt platform. How do you think about the social and the sharing aspect of this when it comes to how you're thinking about building all, but also leveraging social platforms in general?
1: I think social is part of the intrinsic value, actually. That's what you know, I talk a lot about the intrinsic value of cards, and we can get to that after. But the sharing element, there's a little bit of a flex, obviously, when you're sharing something that you purchase. But it's a big part of it. I think social is part of the next generation. They care a lot. They want to showcase what they've done and why. And so whether that's Instagram, TikTok, I do believe that people are going to be walking around with these cards. We probably need to figure out a better way to showcase them rather than these two-by-four plastic containers. But I do think people care a lot about talking about them and Honestly, like this concept of a mail day, for those who are just listening, mail day is when you get a piece of mail, obviously, but you're just so excited about it and you're ripping it open. People record them and it, it, you just, it's like opening up you know, a package on Christmas Day and so people get to experience them day in, day out and they want to share that with the community. They want others to experience the same joy that they have. That's probably one of my favorite things, mail days. So
0: you're getting people excited. People love sports. People love investing. People love talking about investing. It's very social. How should people participate and invest in the card space?
1: Buy your first card. Get educated. You're going to understand it by making a mistake. So just go in and buy a card. I would say either buy a card at auction. If you're buying it at auction, you're going to pay the highest price, but you'll know what the under price is. Or just go buy a card on alt. We'll launch our exchange. We'll tell you exactly how much we think it's worth. And so therefore, the risk is mitigated, but you can start buying and selling and just get educated. It takes a couple of at bats. to take some time, but that's in anything in life. So try it out. See if it's for you. It's it's definitely enjoyable. And then how does the
0: space institutionalize as well? When people want to start putting five, 10, 50, or a hundred million dollars to work in this space, and that could be family offices, that could be wealth managers. Like, what does the evolution of the card space look like from an investment perspective?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that Alt is doing, there's some people who have built indices out there, but they're not true indices. And so we're planning on actually allowing people to buy an index. And there'll be different types. There'll be a specific broad-based indices of the asset classes that we're going into. So whether that's sports cards, sneakers, just trading cards, not even like the generic sports ones, we'll have ones for specific players. So you can buy the LeBron James index. And so those are going to be referenced on specific assets, but we can actually scale them up quite a bit. And so with those type of derivative instruments, they're one-to-one with the underlying asset class, but we can actually take a lot more size. So you'll be seeing that come through over the next couple of months.
0: That's fascinating. So we really are seeing the institutionalization of this asset class before our eyes. I always end the podcast asking everybody what their best or favorite investment idea is. What is your best favorite? Maybe it's most memorable too. It could be anything. It could be an investment you made. It could be an idea you have, whatever it may be.
1: Ooh, well, I feel like I, I can't talk about Lob or Alt because I've already done them. Obviously, I love them so much that I obviously started them myself. I'll talk about a card just because we're talking about cards. So my favorite investment card. There was this one card, and now it's pretty iconic. It's a card. It's 2008 Topps Chrome Kobe Bryant, number 24, It is a card of Kobe Bryant and LeBron James guarding him. And I love this card. I actually bought probably a hundred of them in different variations just because I was like, that's so cool. Like I've never seen a card with Kobe Bryant and LeBron James. And it somehow turned into the most iconic card after Kobe's death. I, I love that story because I love Kobe. Like the Mamba mentality has been something that I've been following for years and Part of it is like, man, if he was alive right now, I know I'd be talking to him about cards. He probably would have been an investor, but he's gotten me to where I was, even though I've never met the person before. And so when I look at that card, to me, it's a moment in time showing what I've accomplished. When I think about, when I look at that card, it's like, I've worked really hard. And that card reminds me of all the hard work that I've done. This is my one kind of moment in time where I look at him like, okay, that's what that card means to me. And it's, I have the super fracture. It's the one of one. Now it's a multi-million dollar card by bought it for very cheap. It, it's more of what that card symbolizes to me as an investment. And so, I don't know, every time I look at that card, I'm like, okay, Mamba mentality, keep working hard, no matter that it, this card is worth a couple million dollars.
0: Well, I think you just literally encapsulated exactly what this card space is all about, With which is the collision of culture and finance thank you so much for coming on. It, it feels like you've given us a window into the future. We're talking about what the financial markets will look like 5, 10, 20 years down the line, but we're, we're talking about it today.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited to see what's going to happen over the next couple of years. So uh, yeah, it was a pleasure being on here.
0: Well, th- th- thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at at Michael Sidgemore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-